Hi, everybody. It's The Sun Also Rises. Thank you for tuning in today. I wanted to start off the show by telling you a joke. It's a joke about two Americans. Let's say their names are Gary and Sean. Gary and Sean were flying their airplane over Israel, and it crashed in a desert near Jerusalem. They were both unharmed by the crash, but as they traveled through the desert looking for civilization, they became incredibly hungry and thirsty. They went on for three days, and they'd never been so hungry and so thirsty, but they trudged on and trudged on, and eventually, right after sunset one evening, they spotted a small synagogue, and they became very hopeful. But Sean said, look, the Jewish people in there might be more inclined to help us if we say that we are Jewish, so we should pretend to be Jewish. Gary said, no way, I'm not going to lie about something like that. Well, a few minutes later, the two of them arrived at the synagogue, and they were greeted by a rabbi who asked them their names. Sean thought of a Jewish-sounding name, and he said, Shalom, Rabbi. My name is Benjamin. Gary stuck to the truth, and he said, My name's Gary. The rabbi looked at them, and he said, Gary, you look like you're starving. Why don't you follow these men here, and they'll give you lots of food and drink? Then the rabbi turned to Sean, and he said, Shalom, Benjamin, and happy day of atonement. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. I know that's a little bit of a groaner there. But humor is a delicate thing. It's, it's really not at all easy to wield it effectively. The acclaimed educator Lawrence Peter once said, there are three rules for creating humor, but unfortunately no one knows what they are. I have learned one, not so much a rule as a guideline for humor, that I think has helped me quite a lot. And that is, what's the difference between a good joke and a bad joke timing. I might still have some work to do on on that uh, on the timing front there. But that's okay because the whole episode today is about humor. So we'll have a, a few more chances to practice. On this episode, we'll talk about humor itself. What is it? Why is it? Where does it come from? What happens in its absence? We'll discuss the vital role that humor played for one of America's most influential people. And we'll talk a little bit about why it's worth trying to improve your own sense of humor. And I'll also do my best to demonstrate humor from time to time with a few more jokes and anecdotes here and there, hopefully with correct timing. Some listeners may know that the KPCG studio that the Sun Also Rises operates out of is located on the campus of Herbert W. Armstrong College here in Edmond, Oklahoma. And Armstrong College is a terrific school. It's quite unlike uh, universities and colleges that generally teach students just one very narrow range of knowledge. Instead, Armstrong College's stated purpose, according to the student catalog, is to, quote, present a balanced education with emphasis on character development and right culture. It's about helping develop the whole personality. And then if you look in the educational objectives listed in that same student catalog, there are seven different stated objectives for the students of Armstrong College. And number four on the list says, quote, to become more outgoing, considerate, well-spoken, and humorous, end quote. That's one of the stated objectives of Armstrong College, teaching students to develop a better sense of humor. Of course, it's just one of very many tiny parts of of a well-rounded personality. But really, developing a better sense of humor is a worthwhile goal for all of us. 
It's been said that a well-developed sense of humor is the pole that adds balance to your steps as you walk the tightrope of life. That was William Ward that said that. And it is true that humor helps us have balance and perspective and approachability. And there's another benefit of humor that we don't hear about quite as often, and that is its ability to connect people. I have a short story from my own experience that illustrates this. It starts back in 2004 when I became really determined to learn the French language. I'd recently gotten my bachelor's degree and I was really proud of that degree in business administration, but it turned out that employers, prospective employers, were not nearly as impressed with it as I was. And even a year after graduating, I wasn't able to find any kind of a job that didn't require me to wear a hairnet or a paper hat. I desperately wanted to find a job that was a little more long-term than that and that had um, opportunity for advancement. So I thought that if I could just learn another language, then I'd be able to land a job that was hopefully more fulfilling and more, more uh, lucrative. But the problem was I didn't have money or time to go back to university. Usually that's how you'd learn a language, but I couldn't afford another who knows how many years of college. So I determined to just move to France That seemed like it would be the quickest and most affordable way to learn French. Total immersion, they say, is very fast and effective. So I was really excited, and I started looking for jobs in France. But what I soon discovered was that when you have no exceptional qualifications and no money, it's not easy to move to another country. I didn't have EU citizenship, and there didn't seem to be any French companies who wanted to sponsor an American whose most impressive resume entry began with the words sandwich artist. After a few months of searching, I found out that pretty much the only job I could get if I wanted to legally live in France was working as a nanny. So that's what I did. I could tell you that we prefer to be called au pairs or domestic technicians or something like that, but if you're anything like my family and friends at the time, you would just keep on insisting that I was a nanny or perhaps a manny, if you wanted to give me the the dignity of the masculine version. But whatever you want to call the job, I basically lived with a French family, and while the parents went to their jobs each day, I would do household cleaning and cooking, and I would tutor their two young sons, who were 10 and 12 years old, helping them with English and whatever other homework they might have. And I lived with this family in the suburbs of Paris for just about a year. And they were terrific people, and it was a very valuable experience. But my French, especially for the first six months or so that I lived there, was terrible. I could articulate and understand only very simple concepts. So there was a big language barrier between me and my host family. And it was a barrier that something as complex and subtle as humor was not able to break through. I think it was Virginia Woolf who said, humor is the first of the gifts to perish in a foreign tongue. And that was certainly true for me. At first, I didn't think it was really a big deal. You know, humor is not essential, I thought. But as the months went on, I realized that my inability to laugh with my host family, our inability to share humor, really hindered our friendship. That inability prevented us from forming the kind of camaraderie that you would want in a situation like that. The humorist Victor Borge once said, laughter is the shortest distance between two people. 
And laughter and humor really do play an indispensable role in connecting people. And I found out just how true that is during my time in France. But I'm happy to say that by the end of my year there, my French had improved quite a lot, and so did our ability to share humor, which meant that my relationship with my host family improved quite a lot too. Well, in just a moment, I'd like to tackle the difficult question, what is humor? And talk a little bit about the origins of humor also. But first, I'd like to try once again to make you laugh. Or to at least maybe get a little bit of a chuckle out of you. Okay, here we go. In ancient Rome, a general walks into a bar and he holds up two fingers. He says, five beers, please. You don't hear a lot of Roman numeral humor, but there's a little bit for you. Okay, here's another one. What's the difference between Dubai and Abu Dhabi? Well, the people in Dubai don't like the Flintstones, but the people in Abu Dhabi do. What do you call a Frenchman wearing sandals? Philippe Falop. Okay, one more. We really should have known from the beginning that communism wasn't going to work. After all, there were a lot of red flags. I should be careful with communist jokes, though. A communist joke is not funny unless everyone gets it. Okay, well, maybe one of those got at least a smile from you. That's one of my goals with this episode. I hope to get a laugh or at least a little smile out of each of you listeners at some point in the show. And I do have uh, reserved for the end what I think are some, some pretty big guns. So we'll see how it goes. But what is humor? What is comedy? You know, of course, it's something amusing or funny or witty or comical, but there are some specific definitions of what exactly constitutes humor also. One of these was proposed by the American writer James Thurber. He said, quote, humor is emotional chaos remembered in tranquility. I like this definition, emotional chaos remembered in tranquility. I think it is true for many instances of humor. If you think back about my story earlier about being underemployed for many months after graduation and then having to take a job as a nanny, I can tell it now in a way that is funny or that at least strives to be funny. But at the time that I was enduring all of that, it didn't feel funny at all. It was an emotional chaos. And I'd like to play a short clip here. This is one of my dad's classic stories about his childhood in uh, the Fort Lauderdale, Florida area. And I think that it helps to demonstrate the validity of Thurber's definition of humor. One day, two of my brothers and I were just out riding our bicycles, and we uh, came upon a huge cow pasture. There were a lot of cows in the pasture, but they seemed to be really far away on one end. So we decided to throw our bikes over the fence, and then we climbed the fence and uh, started on our way to cross the pasture. We were doing pretty well until we looked up and all of a sudden we saw that all of these cows were running towards us. And we thought, wow, we're going to be stampeded and be killed and all kinds of bad things. So we started to run away from the cows. But in Florida, 
the grass in those pastures can grow really thick and there was no way that we could cross except if we were in one of those skinny cow trails. The trails, if they didn't go where we needed them to go, it, uh, it didn't go well. So we kept on getting real stressed out. If my brother was ahead of me, I'd start hollering and saying, why, why can't you go faster? And, and so he'd let me by and then he'd start hollering at me, how come you're not going that fast? And anyway, and the cows were getting really close. And then finally, after what felt to the boys like an eternity of being chased by these cows. They stopped. And they turned around and started leaving. And we were so surprised and figured out that uh, they must have thought we had their food or something. Anyway, uh, bottom line is that we didn't die that day. And uh, now I have this story to tell my kids and boy, do they like stories. When my dad tells that story, the people hearing it laugh, and he laughs. But at the time that it happened, it was not at all funny. It was terrifying for him and his brothers. It was emotional chaos. But remembering that chaos, reflecting back on it now, in a time of tranquility, as Thurber said, that's funny. Another definition of humor comes from the writer John Vorhaus, who said, humor is the combination of truth and pain. I think that's also true for many instances of humor. If you uh, think back to the joke at the beginning of this episode, it's funny, I think, because it combines truth and pain. The man has to endure the pain of fasting as a result of his lie about being Jewish. And, And the joke is true because it illuminates a general truth about dishonesty. You know, we think that we can solve our problems sometimes by lying about something. But in in fact, the lie always just ends up making it worse. The French playwright Moliere also had a definition of humor that places truth at its very center. He said, the duty of comedy is to correct men by amusing them. But anyway, however you want to define it, if you even care to attempt to, humor is important. It's, it's more important than we might think. And a strong case can be made that it's actually a requirement of a balanced life. Henry Ward Beecher talked about this requirement in one of his essays. He said, a person without humor is like a wagon without springs. It's jolted by every pebble in the road. And if you wanted to update that for modern times, you could maybe say it's like a car with no suspension system. And most of us have probably learned firsthand that having a sense of humor and knowing how to laugh at ourselves is vital in helping us navigate through life and through bumpier times. And then if you think about times of full-blown crisis, it's even more necessary. That leads us into the next segment. This is about one of the most influential men in American history and about the vital role that humor played in this man's history-altering life. This segment is produced and presented by Armstrong College alumna Whitney Kelsey. Mark Twain once pointed out, the secret source of humor is not joy, but sorrow. Perhaps there is no other life that illustrates this quote as perfectly as that of Abraham Lincoln. He was a man well acquainted with grief. 
In his life, he experienced the untimely deaths of many of those closest to him, his siblings, his beloved mother, his first love, and most tragically of all, his two children. These tragedies would have conquered a lesser man, but Abe Lincoln challenged the darkness with his well-crafted weapon, a wicked sense of humor. During the 20 years he spent writing the circuit court in central Illinois, Lincoln used his colorful phrases and humor of the common people to win juries to his side and entertain those who gathered in the local taverns. He gained the reputation as the best spinner of yarns in the state. His legal partner, William Hurden, recalled Lincoln's particular flair and talent for comedy. In the role of storyteller, I regard Mr. Lincoln as without an equal. His power of mimicry and his manner of recital were unique. His countenance and all of his features seemed to take part in the performance. As he neared the pith or point of the story, every vestige of seriousness disappeared from his face. His gray eyes sparkled. A smile seemed to gather up curtain-like the corners of his mouth. His frame quivered with suppressed excitement, and when the nub of the story, as he called it, came, no one's laugh was heartier than his. Ohio journalist David Locke observed the same in Lincoln when he interviewed him on the campaign trail against Stephen Douglas. Locke said of him, His flow of humor was a sparkling spring gushing out of a rock. The flashing water had a somber background which made it all the brighter. Whenever merriment came over that wonderful countenance, it was like a gleam of sunshine upon a cloud. When Douglas accused Lincoln of being two-faced, Lincoln showcased his skill for self-deprecating humor with his reply. Honestly, if I were two-faced, would I be showing you this one? After defeating Douglas in 1860, Lincoln brought his sense of humor with him to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. He would need it when not even a year later, darkness descended upon America. As the Union gasped and heaved in the grips of death, Lincoln felt each convulsion deeply within himself. As he processed his own personal tragedies and the death of his sons, he shouldered the grief of the nation as well. Pinning letters to grieving mothers and sentencing court-martialed soldiers to death added to Lincoln's fund of sorrow. Undoubtedly, the strain this responsibility placed on him was heavy and unrelenting, but the crucible of war was unable to rid Lincoln of his sense of humor. When Treasury Secretary McCullough called upon the president at the White House just days after the first devastating battle of Bull Run, he was amazed to hear the president begin to tell a story about the battle, as he said, in such a manner so humorous as to indicate that he was free from care and apprehension. I could not then understand how the president could feel like telling a story when Washington was in danger of being captured and the whole North dismayed. McCullough left the White House fearing that Lincoln was frivolous and his election would prove a fatal choice. However, years later, the secretary reversed his opinion, having learned of Lincoln, that storytelling to him was a safety valve and that he indulged in it not only for the pleasure it afforded him, but for a temporary relief from oppressing cares. Lincoln said so himself on occasion. On one such occasion, the president began a discussion of the draft of the Emancipation Proclamation by reading aloud a passage from one of his favorite humorists. When some of his cabinet members disapproved of this display of lightheartedness at such a solemn event, the president responded, gentlemen, why don't you laugh? With the fearful strain that is upon me night and day, if I did not laugh, I should die, and you need this medicine as much do I. In light of recent scientific research about the effects of laughter on the human ability to withstand pain, Lincoln was ahead of his time when he called laughter his medicine. 
Unfortunately, Lincoln's brand of humor was stolen from the world with a single gunshot. But fortunately, many examples of his humor and wit have been recorded. The life of Abraham Lincoln teaches us many lessons, like the importance of standing firm for a cause you believe in, the value of personal sacrifice, and the necessity of relying on a benevolent God. But we can't ignore the directive his example gives us as well, to laugh in the face of adversity. For this next bit, I'd like to get into a little about the origins of humor. But just before that, maybe we can sneak in one more brief attempt at making you laugh. You might have already heard about this. Earlier today, President Trump said that later on this year, he plans to ban the sale of all pre-shredded cheese in the country. Apparently, he wants to make America great again. Okay, I apologize for that one. That's another another groaner there, another pun. Puns have been called the lowest form of humor. And maybe that's true. Whatever slight comedic power they have lasts only the fraction of a second that it takes to resolve their semantic incongruity. But I think puns still have some value in some cases, so I don't mind them too much. Earlier we mentioned the stated student objectives of Armstrong College and pointed out that One of the items on the list includes the goal of helping students to become more humorous. And that may have come as a surprise to hear that a college would include that as a goal for their students. But if you know that Armstrong College is founded on biblical principles, then this objective really should come as no surprise. The Bible includes several passages about the importance and value of humor. You've got Ecclesiastes 3, in which King Solomon said there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. Proverbs 17, 22 says, A merry heart does good like medicine. And then there's Psalm 2, which says God himself laughs. He is actually the author of humor. He created it. You can get a bit of a glimpse into his humor by taking a trip to a zoo, I think. And you can see these Creatures that he designed, some of them are far stranger and and sillier than they, you know, needed to be, I think. Penguins and bonobos come to mind. Fainting goats, too. Even an ordinary house cat. And we can also get a glimpse into God's humor by looking into the scriptures. One of these examples is in the account of God's servant, Elijah, when he was talking to a group of pagan prophets And these pagan prophets had been trying and trying to get their false god to manifest himself. They were shouting and jumping around and trying everything they could, but to no avail. And of course, Elijah knew that their god was imaginary. Their god was a social construct of their own devising. But instead of just dryly telling these men that their god was false and that they were wasting their time, Elijah did something pretty funny. He said, quote, Shout louder. He's a god, so maybe he's busy. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's taking a nap and somebody needs to wake him up. That's the international standard version. And I can never get through this passage without at least smiling a little bit because of that scathing sarcasm that Elijah uses. He was using humor, and and he was using it, I think, pretty effectively. In other Bible passages, you find examples of Comedic devices like hyperbole and irony and 
some really amusing analogies. There, there's one passage in which a woman who is beautiful but indiscreet is compared to a golden jewel in the snout of a pig. <laughs> and then there's another one that talks about a slothful man who's too lazy even to lift his hand to his mouth. Then there's uh, the idea of a camel trying to pass through the eye of a needle. And there's even wordplay sometimes in the Bible, although we, we usually don't know about it because it's lost in translation. One of my favorite examples of this is in the book of Jeremiah. In the Hebrew language, which this book was written in, the word for almond tree is very similar to the word for hasten or watch. Almond tree is shockhead, and hasten or watch is shokhead. So when the prophet says, I see the rod of a shockhead, God answers, you see well, for I will shokhead my word to perform it. So a pretty interesting and uh, colorful little bit of wordplay there, I think. And these few examples can uh, show us that working to develop a good sense of humor is a worthwhile goal, not just for Armstrong College students, but for all of us. Humor is one area of character development that can be difficult because in this world, humor is so often off-color or hurtful or uh, dark or perverted. So developing the right kind of humor is a challenge, but it's a challenge worth undertaking. Well, maybe I've accomplished my goal today with some of you. Maybe I've made you laugh, but I know that a few of you out there are stoics. You have an imperturbable seriousness, and your stolid countenance has not even budged throughout my various pathetic and plebeian attempts at humor. And so now, for you Stoics out there, we're going to pull out the big guns. This is a clip of a highly regarded BBC news broadcaster. She's British, and she's very serious, very professional. But in this particular clip, it's from a live recording, she hears something that she was not expecting. I don't want to give too much of it away, but as many times as I've heard this clip, I still can never get through it without erupting into genuine laughter. And I challenge you Stoics out there to listen to this and to hear this woman struggle to regain her composure without laughing. American historians have discovered what they think is the earliest recording of the human voice, made on a device which scratched sound waves onto paper blackened by smoke. It was made in 1860 and featured an excerpt from a French song, Au Claire de la Lune. The, the award-winning screenwriter Abby Mann has died at the age of 80. He won an Academy Award in 1961 for Judgment at Nuremberg. Abby, excuse me, sorry. Abby Mann also won several Emmys, including, including one in 1973 for a, f for a film which featured a, pl a police detective called... <laughs> the character on whom a long-running TV series was eventually based... Well, there it was. If you managed to get through that without laughing at least a little, then you are an impressive specimen. You know, when, uh, when Prince Charles heard that BBC clip back in 2008 when it first aired, he actually ended up sending the broadcaster, Charlotte Green, 
a letter thanking her for the hearty laugh that he enjoyed from it. He said that Charlotte's giggle fit left him with tears streaming down his cheek. And Prince Charles was grateful to her for that laugh. Well, I'd like to thank you all for listening to the show today. And I'd like to thank Donald Jacques and Whitney Kelsey for their contributions. And also to thank Steve Herkus for helping with some of the recording. Don't forget to subscribe to The Sun Also Rises on SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please send us your comments, questions, and maybe a funny anecdote or two. Our email address is tsar at kpcg.fm. I'll leave you today with one more snippet of wisdom from Victor Borge. He said, Humor is something that thrives between man's aspirations and his limitations. There is more logic in humor than in anything else because, you see, humor is truth. <laughs>